We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello and welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle number 15. Yeah. So we've got six principles now under the heading of governments. Governments. Uh, And would you like to quickly rehearse the previous sections that we've done? So we've done biosphere and people. We've done democracy and subsidiarity. We've done the fourth separation of powers and the world can't run on lies. So we constructed that element of the system. And now we come finally to this part called governments, which some people start with, but if you don't get the system right, then you won't get your government right. So at this point, number 15, governments shall serve democracy and be effective, stable, adaptable, accountable, and open. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, that would be so nice. And in those conditions, the thing that stands out to me is this question of subsidiarity, that the it's about what we want from government. It's sort of a wish list, isn't it? But I think it's also an acceptance that we determine government. It's not that we ask the daddy of government to be all these things. It's really that we are the the grown-ups and we are stewards of these governments. Every country gets the the government it deserves. Personally, I don't deserve the government that we're currently getting or, or indeed many of the others that we've had. And we do have agency. And as you say, subsidiarity starts with us as individuals and us organising as individuals. And part of that organising is saying right, this is what we want from government. Mm. And yeah, we can all carry on and go, it's all too difficult. Or we can demand change Mm. and we can start thinking about it, talking about it and saying, this is what we want from government. These are the standards that we expect. And just to Uh, rehearse those standards again, we're we're saying to be effective, stable. I mean, that seems reasonable, adaptable. Again, when pandemics come along and that kind of thing, accountable so that people can show that they are trustworthy, which would then increase trust in government, and open that there's a direct relationship between citizens and the government. And they're here to serve democracy. They're not here to serve themselves. It's for us to be demanding of these people. And then the politics changes. Mm. And then you get these changes happening. And these things do happen. Um, But, you know, if we just all sit around going, it's all too difficult, 
then it won't. And but then this work. is a function, really, of the neoliberalist environment that we find ourselves in. And the onslaught since the 1980s, or maybe a bit before, of, of anti-government sentiment, you know, that, that somehow the government only exists to, to thieve um, and is relatively, well, quite right-wing um, orientation on things, that has gone out of its way to undermine governments, undermine truth to some extent, and undermine reasonable state authority. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of that book by, uh, which I think we've mentioned before, by Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad called The Sovereign Individual, which is a sort of Bible for the rich, where he's selling the idea of the individual as a country in their own right, um, who should look, you know, who should cultivate instability to find great new ways of profiting from, uh, for example, nation states. And I think in the principle, there's, there's a kind of implication that government doesn't really serve democracy. It's not no. really effective. No. It's not stable. It's not yeah. particularly good at adapting. I mean, no. although having said that, the vaccine rollout has been not too bad. Um, it's yeah, not like, accountable. In fact, it's quite opaque in many ways. Yeah. Um, and in general, it's inaccessible to individuals. So we don't, you know, I don't feel that I have any particular relationship with government. And in a sense, I, I see my existence in the world as being relatively anarchic. You know, I go and vote because I sort of feel it's a good thing to do. But there is a reality that is almost the opposite to what this principle yeah. yearns yeah. for. There's something here about us as citizens setting standards, this notion of political authority. So we've got people's sovereignty that we talked about earlier on. Now, where are we going to send our collective power to in terms of the allocation of political authority? Well, in this particular case, we're allocating it to a thing called a government. And as we allocate it to that government, this is what we're specking up mm. in terms of what we want. Think about buying a bike or a computer or something or other. What's the spec for this yeah. thing? Well, it's also what's the image? Because these do sound like character traits. Somebody who's effective, stable, adaptable, accountable and open. That's a cultural statement. It is a cultural statement. And of course, the culture has just got more and more degraded. Here we are today. And by and large, we'd be very surprised if governments did any of this. Mm. But I think that you pin this on system design. And I, this, I suppose, is exactly why we're talking about constitutions and, and principles. So how do we actually go about getting from this neoliberalist nightmare to having a government that is just, you know, good enough? Well, I mean, that's right back to us all thinking hmm. and thinking about our thinking and not getting drawn into day-to-day adversarial arguments and politics, you know, listening to the news and just getting absorbed by the system as is and, and the knockabout and the mm. entertainment of politics, which is what it's become. Do we want politics as an entertainment or do we want, you know, as we said here, to serve democracy, effective, stable and so on? So you're talking um, about a change in mindset. It's a change in our mindset and everything starts with purpose. You know, what is the purpose of government? Why is it here? What do we want it to do? In the book, we've sort of thought about this quite a lot. And indeed, I invite 
people listening to think about this is is this what we want a system is required that generates the most beneficial change hmm. um, is balanced in its decisions and operations between the biophysical world and people um, balanced between the rich and others between big organizations and individuals in the application of laws in the distribution of welfare in the raising of taxes and between current and future generations is that what we want well I think that's about right. Mm. Other people might say, well, yeah, have you, yeah, but what about this or what about that? And I'm not quite sure about that. But for us to think, you know, what is it we want? And then to talk to each other about that. You know, if you take Wales, where there's quite a discussion going on at present about, well, if there were some form of independence, it's not just about independence and devolution. Mm. It's about what are you then going to do with it? Yes. Uh, and those discussions are happening and the political pressure is rising there. Mm. And the, the usual sort of knockabout on the edges. But at the centre, there's a lot of thinking going on. So uh, when you uh, say there's a lot of thinking going on, I mean, I was looking at your process of systemic inquiry, where you start with the simple business of understanding situations in contexts. One of the crucial things with a systemic inquiry and and this is the basis on which we propose a lot would get done mm. in government is that rather than starting with the answer mm. so i've just been to the dentist again today mm. a relatively painless experience and indeed i've got some new teeth which is fantastic but talking to the dentist he was saying well you know with dentistry in britain you've got this situation where on the one hand You've got NHS dentistry, which is often run on a minimum wage basis, not for the dentists themselves, although that they're not that highly paid. Mm. So you've got that environment. And then you've got private practice, which can be good, but can also be quite iffy. But as it happens in the whole furlough payment thing, whilst all sorts of businesses and the hospitality industry and all the rest of it has been supported, the private dentists have not been supported. They haven't got the furlough payments that have gone into the NHS end of the business. And consequently, one in five private clinics has closed. You start to think then, not about answers to all of that, but you start to think about understanding the situations in context and the history of the situation. How has this arisen? What decisions have been taken to get us to this point? Mm. What's the training like? Is the training still up to standard? That means when we go to the dentist of whatever form, shape or size, that actually the person who's actually doing the job, who is the crucial person, i.e. the dentist, mm. is trained to the high standard and indeed continues to be trained. The next part of the systemic is addressing questions of purpose. Why... Do we have dentistry? And mm. uh, in the case of dentistry, I think the answer may be pretty obvious. Well, it's to ensure that I have a good set of, and you have a good set of teeth to chew on. Um, and that service is provided in a way that I guess what minimizes pain, mm. um, uh, maximizes longevity of teeth. Uh, and is done at a reasonable cost. You then have questions of saying, well, okay, 
So how is that to be paid for? Is it to be paid for by the individual? Well, a lot of people can't afford that. So you're then saying, well, if people can't afford that, do we in our society say that actually um, that should be paid for uh, out of the common pool, um, like uh, the NHS is? The next blob is clarifying and distinguishing what from how, as well as addressing why. And this, this what, how, or what, why, how, is one of the crucial uh, uh, tenets of systems thinking any any time you're going to do something. So what is it you're going to do? Um, why are you going to do it? And then how are you going to do it? And, and so often in government, it's the how that, you know, we have a policy. Here is the policy. It, it may be well formed. It may have a, a clear, good why. Uh, it may have a sound purpose. Mm. But so often in government, how it's going to be done and how it's going to be put into action is completely missing. So really, this reaches directly into the questions of context and history, as well as the questions of purpose. This is about basically taking what you've discovered in the first two steps and then putting it all in its right place, as it were. You know, the how depends on where you are now. You can't ignore the actuality of the current circumstances. Right. So again, this touches on this rather than trying to scrap a current system and rebuild it. It's about working with the current system and improving it. Occasionally, scrapping something and starting again is actually your only way forward. The old Greater London Council, which was scrapped by... Margaret Thatcher. It was a political act. But actually, as somebody who worked there previously, the organisation was so moribund and so gummed up with politics at every possible level. It was so gummed up, actually, to reform it, you did need to scrap it. The problem there was that then London was left without a government for 14 years, which is completely nutty. Mm. You, you, know, you can't run a modern city without a sound and strong local government. And indeed, the government that it currently has has some powers, but I mean very limited. So who, who set up the current governance of London? That was set up by New Labour, right. um, who did the right thing in terms of getting it established, but limited its powers and, and initially didn't even transfer the London Underground to what then became the GLA, the Greater London Assembly, and to the Executive Mayor. I mean, one of the great ironies of all of this is Ken Livingstone, who led the old Greater London Council in a pretty anarchic way, then became the Executive Mayor, running on an independent ticket, Mm. I should add size, which is well worth thinking about in relation to party politics. Is it the person or is it the party? Well, for an executive mayor, it's the person. He then came in and did an absolute storming job in terms of sorting out the public transport. Yes. And so the yeah. buses were revolutionised, the tubes were revolutionised, more of the urban railways were brought within the remit of the Greater London authority. Well, I remember all the overground trains coming in around the periphery of London, suddenly places like Homerton, which had been backwaters, were were shooting up in property value and everybody wanted to live there. Well, that raises another interesting issue, of course, as to how all of that 
public expenditure, that commons, mm. that collective taxation and input, how the product of that got captured by a whole pile of property developers, which is not a good system. But I guess that that may be a, a discussion for another day. I think it might. We need um, to come back to this systemic inquiry. So we've gone through yeah. understanding context, addressing questions of purpose and clarifying and distinguishing what from how and addressing the why. So now we get yeah. into facilitating action that is purposeful, which is systemically desirable and culturally feasible. Yeah. So that's an interesting one. That sort of reminds me of, of series one with Julian Corner's action inquiries. So at this point, you'll accept that what you're doing is experimentation mm. because you're changing and you don't know precisely how these things are going to work out, how people are going to respond, how institutions are going to respond and how indeed patients are going to respond. So you set up a series of experiments. You see how your design for action, as we call it, is working hmm. you get feedback on that and you find that some of it's working well in certain contexts some of it is not working so well so you adjust that and you adapt your course as in the sailing metaphor for government yes this reminds me of something that will be familiar to people working in business or the private sector where you have a product which then is iterated and is designed around use cases, whether that's a, a software product or a physical product. And then eventually you end up with state of the art of that design, which will then improve over time, as we've seen our computers improving over time. They get smaller and better functioning. Yeah. And now we have computers that fit in our pockets in the form of smartphones. So I think what you're saying is that government, design for good government, could function in the same way. You know, you can have a concept that's constantly revisited, updated, and improved upon using what some people call a, a Kaizen continuous improvement system. Yeah, you're going to want to try out different ways and then find that, oh yeah, that one's working better than this one. Mm. Um, of course, that brings us back to subsidiarity. Mm. And that, for example, if you ran those models through an effective local government setup so that you could vary the practice and the experiments from place to place. And then those local governments could pick up that more effective practice. Right. As, as we talked last week, I think, or the week before, about how Germany is adapting its local governments because it has such a plethora of arrangements and it's now finding that the southern German model seems to work best. Right. So you could do this with, in this case, dentistry. Yeah. But this notion that somehow or other... And, of course, it's very systematic, mm. the notion that we have at present, that we set up the whole of dentistry and then, I mean, changes are made, but the feedback is never there as to whether it's worked and changes are made nationally. You know, it's a sort of big bang thing. Yes. Rather than doing it on an experimental basis and acknowledging it as an experiment and running it as an experiment. Right. So that's, and then we get to the final point of developing a means of orchestrating practices across space and time, which continue to address a phenomenon or phenomena of social concern when it is unclear at the start as to what would constitute an improvement 
Yeah, I mean, that. that's in a way what, what I've just been talking right. about. Okay. So orchestrating practices across space and time. So that's what Okay, yes, yeah, yeah. And picked a relatively simple example here in terms of dentistry. You know, there's your teeth and you want them good. <laughs> that's fairly straightforward. But address a phenomenon or phenomena of social concern when it's unclear at the start as to what would constitute an improvement. Well, I mean, that's probably the place to think about, say, a welfare system. Mm. What would constitute an improvement? We tend to be trapped in this notion that either we're sort of soft on welfare and generous on welfare, or we're hard on welfare. Right. But really, you need to think that the outcomes of welfare are not necessarily the same for different people. Exactly so. So on on the one hand, you might say, right, well, the purpose of welfare is to enable people to become functioning citizens again, Mm. tax-positive citizens. Someone who's made unemployed, what can we do in terms of basic support whilst that person is unemployed, retraining and that sort of thing? Well, that's absolutely fine for a person in those circumstances. But what about a person who has got into a mindset of being a victim? Mm. How do you get that person out of that sense? What about people who, with the best will in the world, their physical and mental capacities are such that they're always going to be dependent on the state? And in a country as rich as ours, I think, we would say, well, then we need to support those people fairly. But you're going to have to look at each of those circumstances. I mean, you've been saying in relation to supporting people fairly, well, what does that mean? You know, with all the discussions, disagreements, concerns, there have been over disability payments, for example, in the past. I was given the statistic the other day that 80% of people in Derry in Northern Ireland are on disability benefit. Mm because it was a sort of convenient place for people to go in order to deal with the troubles. Right. Well, you're looking at quite a complex phenomena there Mm. that will take some time to unwind and you're going to have to experiment and trial and error and do all sorts of different things. Well, I mean, if you've been listening to reports on the Gaza Strip in the last few days and the impact of living in what a lot of Palestinians see as an open prison. I'm not someone who's against the state of Israel. I just think that the living conditions for Palestinians are obviously difficult. I mean, it's a miracle that they have any effective governance there at all, given the sheer impact of bombs going off regularly on individual houses. That situation is unbelievably complex and well, but by and large, my, uh, the, the conclusion I've reached in relation to the Middle East is that any time uh, the West or indeed any uh, power outside that region gets involved, it simply makes the situation worse. So I would be very cautious about passing any comment. But what I would say is if you could get those peoples and governments and forces together and say, OK, Let's do a systemic inquiry here. Let's address this not through violence and bombs and incarceration, 
but I think a systemic inquiry will be a rather better way and a rather more certain way to do it. Where would we go? Well, let's first of all understand as partly what you were doing there, Philip, understand the situation in context and especially the history of the situation. Yes. What is the purpose? Presumably for people to live peaceful and contented. And fulfilled and, lives, and yeah. Harmonious lives. And okay. so in that context, the character of the governments they're looking for in terms of effectiveness, stability, adaptability, accountability and openness are falling fairly far short on each level. But yeah. they are having to create a workable life for themselves within that context. So that points to some degree of parallel or individual governance it could well do, but, you know, because as soon as you say that, that then you're into solutions, mm. but that is not how you do a systemic inquiry. You don't start with solutions. Right. You would certainly start by saying to all of the parties, do you agree that governments shall serve democracy and be effective, stable, adaptable, accountable, and open? Or do you think something else? And if you do think something else, well, why on earth do you think something else? And I, I would sort of challenge it at that level. Right. And then we can start to work our way into, well, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And why are we doing it? You know, in, in many respects, people look at systems thinking and think, oh, this is dreadfully complicated. But you look at the way in which we go about things now, which is sort of haphazard and evolved anarchy was a term you used earlier on. Well, that's immensely complex, chaotic, and, and actually, frankly, at times completely ununderstandable. Yes. And systems thinking, you know, it's actually quite simple. It sort of deconstructs. There's a point there in terms of the limits of our concentration on the one hand and the longevity of our lives together in a society or on a planet, which is probably more than 50 years for most people, probably more than mm -hmm. 100 years for a significant amount of people. Um, and therefore, that's quite a long time to acquire the skills and to develop the capacity to deliberate. And it's interesting, we were talking earlier on before the show about how in some countries and cultures, one's aware of a level of environmental consciousness that perhaps doesn't exist in other countries and it's hard to put your finger on but you know certainly I've spent a lot of summers in Germany and I've often noticed how quickly people default to how things will affect people around them in, uh, yeah. in a part of their conversation and again this mirrors one element of this principle which is the change in orientation from thinking of the government as being a father figure doling out solutions and benefits to being something that's more like a collaborative exercise. Yeah, very much so. And that whole issue of developing an environmental conscience and consciousness is absolutely crucial to the future of our planet. And we were pondering also, well, you know, why is it in Germany and, and other countries that there is this greater environmental conscience? And, you know, some of it is no doubt cultural, deeply cultural. 
Um, some of it is that they have proportional representation, again, mm. which is much more about producing consensus and collaboration and us all being in this together mm. uh, rather than us just acting as individuals. And so tossing. in a way, we, we have a, a sort of usual suspects syndrome. I'm thinking of Switzerland as well, where, where they have yeah. a good level of subsidiarity of individual and because, primacy and therefore a stronger sense of their control over their lives and, and environments. Yeah, exactly. So they didn't need to take back control. They already had control. Mm. And because they do feel that they have power, whereas typically we here feel that we don't, we are powerless, but because they do feel they have control, then they as individuals can do something. In this particular case, well, I can stick that fast food wrapper into a bin or the appropriate bin for recycling. Mm. So many of these things trickle down. <laughs> I mean, you really do get trickle down here, don't you, in systemic principles for governing. Yeah. Uh, so many of these things trickle down into behaviour. One of the easiest things you could do is when going to McDonald's and, you know, you do a drive-through order or indeed an order at the desk, you could simply print on the box the number plate of the car because this has all been recorded and it would be a simple piece of software, number eight of the car, so that, you know, when someone chucks a package out of the window, someone packs it, picks it up and there's a number plate of the car on it and that would act as a great mm. disincentive. That's quite a clever idea so much better if you'd created or if we'd created a culture if we lived in a culture of environmental conscience mm. where we just wouldn't do that some of that you could see has happened in australia where they had a litter campaign roughly at the same time as we introduced a, an anti-littering law yeah, that's right we talked about this in series one actually yeah yeah we're, we're being tough on on litter and you know blah 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 blah, blah. but they they, didn't um, they they had an education um they had an education program and and the phrase was don't be a tosser yes oh well um, i've, I've and, seen that in our local park so somebody must have seen that because they they yeah. It's quite it's quite a good little ad. It basically said you're a tosser because and it gives reasons people throw litter. And then at the end oh, it says, you know, with tick, 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 tick. And then at the end it well, says, well, don't nice. be a tosser. Yeah, and that's nice and it's also an example of the global learning engine yes. at work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. here this successful practice in Australia, twenty, thirty years later, has finally found its way through to St Albans, I'm pleased to say. And there, uh, the local government has some powers anyway to be able to do to something. Yeah. Well, that's a nice place to start thinking about next week, where okay. we're on to principle number 16. We've covered this to an extent here, but we're going to go into this in much more detail next week, which 16, the purpose of government is to produce beneficial change. Simple. And it's an invitation also to listeners to consider, well, what would your purpose of government be? Answers to the Hidden Power podcast at gmail.com. 